Well, we are wanting to go into a time of just studying God's Word together and, and, and just allow His Spirit to teach us during this time, to bring revelations to, to us, to, to challenge us, to convict us. So really, ultimately, what we've committed to do as a church is this. We are committed of standing on God's word. But we don't want to do what but what we don't want to do is we don't want to constantly look at God's word through the lens of culture. And I know you've heard me kind of warn you of this often enough during this past year. And I think that's something that we as followers of Christ have allowed to trickle into our own lives and into the life and the ministry of our churches, that we have allowed culture to tell us how we need to read God's word, how we need to interpret it. But we have committed to a church that we won't do that. Instead, what we want to do is we want to look at culture through the lens of God's word. That is what we want to do. We want God's word to be our foundation. So when things are being tossed and blown around by the wind, we actually want to get our compass out, right? And this is our compass. This will direct us. This will point us in the right direction. That will point us to the true north. And that's God's word. And he's promised us that his word will lead us and guide us He says things like, it will be a light unto our path. So we've committed to doing that in this season. So we have decided to, to, what we've decided to do is spend a few months going through the words of Jesus himself, verse by verse, in what's been called the final discourse. Through John 14 to 16 is what we've been studying so far, and we've been trying to see what Jesus is saying to his closest followers, during a season of uncertainty, in a season where he knows a lot of uncertainty is going to come, a lot of anxiety is going to come, a lot of trouble is going to start coming their way, and he's having this intimate moment with his followers, his disciples, to prepare them, to get them ready for what's about to come. Because when, when he, he knows they're going, what they're going to be facing is suffering and struggle, He knows pain and persecution are coming their way. And what does he say to them? I think what we've discovered along the way is what they needed to hear isn't entirely different than what we need to hear right now, today. See, at that time, the disciples, they were disillusioned. They thought things were going to go differently than they had gone. Because when they remember, when they start following Jesus, they were assuming that Jesus, as the Messiah, was going to bring change to the world. They thought that. They knew that. But their idea that they had in their mind and how that change was going to come about was more political. It was going to be power that that was going to make this change. And this, in large part, is probably why earlier, this same evening that they're having this conversation, that Judas has left. 
to betray Jesus. It's because Jesus wasn't doing things the way they thought he should have been doing them. They wanted the prestige. They wanted a power. They wanted an authority. And Jesus was having none of that. So he is preparing them for what it looks like to actually change the world, not from this political position of power, but instead he's showing them from a place of servanthood, from a place of humility, a place of love. If they're not understanding that, they're just not grasping that yet. And Paul even tells us in Philippians 2 that our attitude, our mind, is to be the same of that of Christ Jesus who made himself nothing. And he took on the very nature of a servant. Now, from our earthly perspective, it doesn't seem like that's the way to change things, right? From our perspective, it seems that the way you change things is by force, right? You take that mantle of power and you wear it. And yet, we find Jesus resisting that again and again and again and again, as early as when he just his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They were ready to crown him. But he's like, that's not the crown I'm supposed to wear. He was coming to change the world, but he was changing it differently than how his followers thought that he would. So what he is trying to do in these final moments before his arrest, before... um, his trial before his crucifixion is that he wants to reassure them of who he is. And that no matter what comes through that door, no matter what they deal with, that he is still God. That he is still on the throne. This is what he's trying to reassure them here. It seems to me that maybe what they need to be reminded of is maybe what we need to be reminded of this week. So we come to the end of chapter 16 today. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 17, which is the prayers of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is going to show us how to pray when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel stressed out by the circumstances of life. He's going to show us how to pray when God's will doesn't match up. It doesn't line up with our will. (laughs) And he's going to pray for us in that prayer as well. So we're starting our, a new and our final leg next week um, of this journey we've been on. So this week, we're wrapping up chapter 16. And here's what Jesus says at the very end of this conversation that he's having with them. Remember, they've been walking. They've been walking in the evening. They've left the upper room where they had the Last Supper, and they're out in the coolness of the evening. They're walking, and they're making their way towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're almost there. And here's what Jesus says to them. John 16, starting in verse 28. This is what we read. He says, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said this, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now, Jesus would often use parables, right, and metaphors to help his disciples think through the kingdom of heaven and to understand who he is. 
But here in this moment, without much time left, he is now speaking real clear to them. Like, you're, not, you're, you're going to understand what I'm saying here. He is saying, I came from heaven. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And he's saying, don't forget that. Don't lose sight of that. Don't think that when this world doesn't go according to your plan, that somehow I'm not in control. I'm still in control. And here Jesus is reassuring them. He's giving them confidence because he knows that there's going to be the tendency in the upcoming days and weeks and months for them to overthink some things. To overthink what's happening. What might happen. And then even to start to wonder, did we even get this all wrong? Did we get this all wrong, the way things are going right now? And he says to them in verse 30, he says, Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. I've titled, wait, that does, you know what, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean they didn't have questions. They still had questions, and they had a lot of questions. But they knew, he knew the answer, even if he didn't give it to them. And after listening to this conversation that, they, that we've been studying these last several months, they had a lot of questions, right? Their minds we're racing with implications of what Jesus has said to them. But here they are saying, finally saying to Jesus, nobody needs to ask you any more questions. Why? Why did they finally come and say that? Because he is from God. He is the Son of God. He loves them. He chose them. And this is the answer to 10,000 questions. See, when you feel overwhelmed in your thinking, when it all feels like too much and you can't shut it off, the answer to 10,000 questions is this. Jesus is God. He loves you. He's chosen you. And he knows exactly what he's doing. So, they start to have this confidence, right? And this courage that comes as Jesus just speaks to them very clearly. And then he ends the conversation with them. Um, in, verse, in verse 33, he says this to them. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. He says, in this world you will have trouble. There's that phrase again. But he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. I've titled this sermon today from overthinking to overcoming. Because let's be honest, we live in a culture, we live in a society, we live in a world of overthinking. Our minds today are constantly being taken captive by what's happening around us or what might possibly happen to us. I think we just have had more trouble than ever of just trying to shut things off in our minds. And Jesus is saying here, I've told you, I've told you all of this stuff. I've told you what you need 
for peace. And yet, in our desperation, we keep trying other solutions to find peace, don't we? So I want to talk about how we find that peace here today. But first of what I want to do is I want to put some skin on overthinking. Because we talk about it, and yet it's not always easy to identify. You know, like what is causing it, or what it looks like when we do it. So, this is what overthinking looks like, or what causes us to do. First thing, um, I've noticed, and even through research um, and through studies, this is the first thing I have found what overthinking looks like, and what it causes us to do is constantly comparing to others. We're always looking at other people, right? We're always looking at other people's lives and, and feeling like, man, I must be missing out. Like, look at what they're doing. Look how put together their family looks like. I'm missing out. We're always looking through this lens of what other people are experiencing. And our minds just get going with that, right? Paul warns us about this in 2 Corinthians 10, where he actually says we don't dare compare ourselves to each other. Because when we do, it just takes our minds captive. We get consumed with this. And to be honest, the whole system right now is just rigged to take your mind captive. I don't know how many of you have, have Netflix. Um, I don't know how many of you know about or have seen the documentary, The Social Dilemma. If you haven't, that's your homework for this week. I encourage you to just watch that because it's pretty interesting. When you get a picture of how this whole system is rigged, that there are these complex and constantly evolving algorithms that are designed to take your thoughts captive. And they like to grab your mind and then not let go. So, our minds are constantly comparing to one another. Another way, another way that overthinking looks like or it, what it causes us to do is we're preoccupied with perfection. It's another cause. That's, an, that's what, what overthinking could look like. See, where our minds are constantly thinking about how something needs to be better than what it is. And some of us look at all of life through this lens of perfection. You look at yourself this way, right? But you also look at other people that way as well. And here's a test. Here's a test to see if this is you. If you're someone that's preoccupied with perfection. So the test is this. When you decide to put up your Christmas tree and your decorations, I know, way too early. But this is a perfect test to know if this is something that you struggle with. So when that time happens, when you start putting all that stuff up, um, I want you to ask yourself this question. Or you can even ask it right now, because you probably know the answer even right now. Do other people want to do that with you? So when you're about to put up the Christmas tree and decorate the tree and put up all the decorations, ask yourself this question. Do other people want to do that with me? It's a good question. That will give you a good answer. 
You know, like, do you just let your kids or your spouse help? But then you fix it after they go to bed? A lot of us do this in, in many different ways. For me, it's not a Christmas tree or it's decorations. It's the dishwasher. That's for me. When other people besides me put stuff in the dishwasher, I hear the dishwasher open, I hear things being put in, and I can already picture it, and in my mind, I'm like, oh my goodness, it's not being put in correctly, and I wait till I go back into the kitchen, and I'll open up the dishwasher and rearrange everything. See, where we find our identity and our self-worth and like how good of a job we do, it's, just, it's kind of constantly thinking about what needs to change. The Bible talks about the sufficiency of God's grace, that it is enough. And yet, for many of us, it's a struggle. It's a struggle to have that when we look at our lives. When we look at what's happening around us, we are constantly preoccupied with perfection. Another sign of overthinking, another cause, another symptom of what it could look like is ruminating but not resolving. It's ruminating but not resolving. It's this idea that we think about things. We just think about things, but we, we, we don't do anything about it. We just allow ourselves just to think and think and think and think and think and think about it, but we we don't resolve it. We don't do anything about it. It just seems there's so much to think about, but it just sometimes feels like there's so little that we can do. So we just give our minds over to ruminating without being able to resolve it. Here's a big one of what overthinking looks like and, some of the, and what it could look like in your life. Looking back and imagining if only. This is a big one. This is another cause of overthinking. It's another symptom of it. Where you're looking back on your life and you're imagining, if only. You spend your time thinking back about something that happened and you're imagining how different your life would be now if you would have done it differently or something would have happened differently. You're looking back at your life through these if-only lenses and like, what are we doing when we do this? Well, we're thinking about something we can't do anything about. It's what we're doing. But our minds, what, they, what it tends to do is it takes us captive by looking back and saying, if only. If only I'd studied harder on that test. If only I went to this school. If only I had that job, right? It's just looking back and, and, and saying, if only. But on the other side of that, we are overthinking also when we are looking ahead and asking, what if? And here's how this works. We look back and we imagine, if only. And whenever we usually say, if only, in our lives, we must almost always imagine best-case scenarios, right? If only I had taken that job, I would have got that better job, right? But 
When we tend to look ahead and do that in our lives we overth and overthink that, we think in terms of worst-case scenarios, right? Have you noticed that? When we look back and think if only, it's best-case scenarios, if only I'd done that differently, I would be better off today. But when we look ahead to the future and we start asking what if, all the times, all the what ifs if, are usually worst-case scenarios, right? Like this idea of what could possibly go wrong. And I love what Isaiah says about this. In Isaiah 26, he says, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. So the question becomes this. Who do we trust? Who do you trust? Who do we trust in for peace? And it's a struggle for us, right? Our minds are always racing. And then we pile up all of our if-only questions with all of our what-if questions. And then all of a sudden, our lives just kind of become that. And that's it. You just look at everything that way. And Jesus knew that this was going to be a struggle for the disciples. That they were just going to be thinking about everything that had happened and going to be thinking about everything. And it's not going, and it's not going how they thought it would. And they are going to be overwhelmed by all this overthinking. And so Jesus says this about all of that. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. That word peace there. I don't know, but I'm guessing it triggered something for the disciples because it wasn't that long ago when they all found themselves in a boat together. They were traveling at night and a storm came upon them unexpectedly. The wind picked up just like that. The waves became big and were crashing over uh, the bow of the boat and all that stuff. And they're panicky. They're saying, what if? You know, what if, what if we don't survive? What if our boat doesn't make it? But where's Jesus in all this? Right? Jesus is in the bottom of the boat. And what is he doing? He's sleeping. They go down to the bottom of the boat. They're panicky. They're asking all these what-if questions, you know, and really saying, we're about to die. And they go down, they found Jesus sleeping. They wake him up frantically, and they say, don't you care? Don't you care if we drown? Don't, we care? don't you care if we die? Don't you care that our families will now be forever impacted? And Jesus kind of wipe, opening his eyes and rubbing his eyes, and saying, you guys, you have little faith. And what does he do? He gets up, gets up on, on, on the deck of the boat, and he talks to the wind, and he talks to the waves. What does he say? He says, peace, be still. It's completely calm. And now Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is how you have that in your mind. 
and in your heart. I've told you these things so that you may have peace. As we studied this final discourse so far from chapters 14 to 16, I just want to finish by giving you what Jesus has been telling his disciples through this conversation. There's, some, there's several big significant themes that he has touched on over and over again throughout this discourse. One of the ones is this, be prepared. It's been a big theme of this final discourse, this conversation. He's, it, he's, it's this idea that he's telling disciples, you need to be ready. I don't want you to get caught off guard, so be ready. Be prepared for the trouble that's coming your way. Don't think that just because you follow Jesus, that you are now somehow exempt from the storms of life, because you're not. And he's saying, remember. Remember this trouble. It only lasts for how long? We looked at that a couple weeks ago. How long does it last for? Remember? Just a miss, right? Just a little while. It's just going to last a little while. So he's saying, be prepared when it does come. Another one is keep perspective. Again, another significant theme of this conversation that he's having. He's saying, I'm leaving, but don't lose your perspective. The Holy Spirit is coming and it's better for you if I go and he comes. Keep perspective on the fact that I'm leaving to prepare a place for you and that I'm coming back for you. Remember that ultimately you are citizens of heaven. Keep perspective. So live on earth like citizens of heaven. Maybe that's a good reminder for us this coming week to keep perspective, to remember that you are a citizen of heaven. Another one is trust his presence. You need to trust his presence. This also has been a theme in John 14 to 16, to trust his presence. The Holy Spirit will be in them and be with them every step of the way. You know, that they are the branch. He is the vine. To abide in him, to stay connected. And he's saying, he's reminding them, trust my presence. And here's how I want to wrap this up. This idea of overthinking and overcoming. How do we, how do we overcome that overthinking? Well, I just want to give you an insight on what, what overthinking is about. And this is just my perspective. Overthinking focuses on what, how, and when. When you're overthinking, you are focusing on the what, the how, and the when. This is how many of us process things, right? We look at the challenges, we look at the struggles of life, we look at the troubles we're experiencing, and we look at what comes through that door, and we want to know what's wrong. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to fix this? How are we going to deal with this? When is this all going to stop? When we are overthinking, that is what we're focusing on. We're focusing on the what, the how, and the when. So overthinking focuses on that. However... Overcoming focuses on who. And this is what Jesus does for the disciples. He takes their thoughts and he says to get your thoughts off of the what, 
the how and the when and to give your thoughts to the who. Keep your, folk, your thoughts focused on me, Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the one who has overcome. So, what we want to, we, so we want to do that together. And one of the best ways to do that is in worship. See, when we worship, God takes our anxious and our overwhelming thoughts and he shifts them over to the overcomer. So we want to find peace in the power and the presence of Jesus. Lord, as we go into a time of worship, I pray that we will just shift our focus to you. That we will shift our focus to the who. To the to the overcomer, to the one who has overcome this world. Lord, that we will not be focused on the the what, the how, and the when that comes with overthinking, but we we stay focused on you. Help us to do that this coming week, that when we find ourselves focusing on the what, the when, and the how, that this will be a reminder that we don't find peace in that, but we need to overcome by focusing on the who. And it's through the who that we will find our peace. Help us to live that way this coming week and beyond. We pray this in your name. Amen.